So on Friday night this week, this weekend, um, you guys didn't know this was going to happen, but there was a guy that the elders of TBC invited to come to our church and teach us for Friday night and also half the day on Saturday. And his name is Dan Wallace, and he is one of the best Greek scholars in the world. Now, he's not Greek. He's American, but he is one of the best scholars when it comes to analyzing uh, New Testament Greek in the entire world. He taught at the school that I went to, uh, Dallas Seminary. And, um, and this guy has written a bunch of books, and it sounds kind of boring at first when you think of like, oh, you're going to analyze the, the Greek New Testament and, and how it was initially written. But if you don't know how the Bible came to be and how it came to be in existence and, and what uh, manuscripts are out there still um, in existence, that, that show the accuracy of the text that we have today. It's pretty interesting. He talked about how there are five, over 5,000 manuscripts that date from like 200 A.D. all the way up to like 1400 A.D. And there's over 5,000 of these complete New Testaments that were written in Greek. And what he's doing is pretty amazing. He actually um, has this, this organization. Their, their existence, their whole purpose is to go and digitally photograph as many pages of these manuscripts as possible and record them, obviously, on, on computers so that we can have permanent record of these things. Because as you know, paper, as, as much as you think that paper is, uh, can, can live eternally, paper cannot live eternally. And so at some point, those manuscripts will go and, and be with Jesus, and they're going to die. And so um, before that happens, though, his goal is to photograph these things digitally and keep them on record so that people can use them from now until really forever and ever until we uh, until Jesus Christ comes back again. So that's his whole mission and a goal. But something else that's very interesting to me that he said this weekend that really struck me. He said what drives him, it's not just some nerdy obsession with the ancient text that drives this guy. It's more than that. He said it's, it's what's driving him is there, there's a popular idea in our culture that's this, that you cannot trust the accuracy of what's in that book over there. You can't trust it. There's, there's too many little textual variants throughout history with these manuscripts. You, you can't trust it. There, there have been books written. One book is called Misquoting Jesus by a guy named Bart Ehrman, who was getting a lot of, who's gotten a lot of media playtime on CNN and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And people, people love these kinds of guys. These guys come out. These are scholars, so-called. And they'll say things like, yeah, that book that Christians believe, you really can't buy it. You really can't believe it because there's just too much wrong with it. And they write books about this kind of stuff. And a guy like Dan Wallace, his whole mission is to refute guys like that. But the thing is, guys like Dan Wallace don't get any media airtime. No one ever calls guys like that and says, hey, come tell us how the Bible is true and accurate, right? It's always the guy who says, no, it's not true. You can't trust it. Um, the apostles the followers of Christ have misquoted Jesus, misrepresented Jesus. He really wasn't the Messiah. And there's these ideas floating around in our culture out there that the media and culture latches onto and says, that sounds right, that sounds true. And guys like Dan Wallace, their whole mission is to try to refute those ideas and preserve and, and help people understand like the magnificence of the book that you and I hold in our hands whenever we hold the Bible in our hands. And something he said to, me, said to us, he said that 90% of people that leave high school will abandon the faith. 
Now, for the sake of today, I've heard, I've never heard a number that high. I've heard more around 70. So I'll go with a more optimistic number, I'm hoping. Um, but just to demonstrate this, we've got how many tables that are full? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. So let's say I'm going to have seven tables to stand up where you're at. So these, these five tables here, you guys go ahead and stand up where you're at. And these two here in the middle, you guys stand up where you're at. Just stand up. I want to let you see this. So that's seven of the 11 tables this morning that are here. This is approximately 70% of the people in the room. Now just stay standing for a minute. I want you to see this. But if the stats hold true, which I hope they don't, seven out of ten people in most youth groups will abandon the faith when they leave for college. That's just what people are saying. Now, I would say that it might be because they never really had a true faith in Jesus. I don't think you can lose your salvation once you've been saved. But the reality is there are many who grow up hearing this book taught hearing the Word of God taught over and over and over again. And as soon as they leave high school, very often they will latch on to the ideas in our culture and in the media, and they'll say, you know what, that sounds better than what I grew up hearing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reject this thing. Now, you know, here's the thing, though. It doesn't always happen consciously, does it? It doesn't always happen like someone argues you out of the faith. It's not really how it always goes down. Very often it happens in a very subtle, just slipping away into oblivion. That's the way it usually goes. You guys can go ahead and be seated. You guys can look at me like, please let us sit down. I've got to finish my waffle. I understand. It's a crisis, I know. Um, so many people, if the stats hold true, many people will most likely abandon their faith once they leave high school and head off into college. And this is why we're doing this series in Colossians the, before you guys, before, you, before the graduates do graduate. We're focusing on you guys mainly. So turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And if you are new today, I'll catch you up just very quickly. A little bit of background in Colossians. Um, go to my first slide. It's a map here. Uh, Paul, a man named Paul, who was one of, the, one of the apostles of Jesus, he was one of the ones who uh, came to Christ after Jesus left the earth. Uh, Paul was in the city of Ephesus, and he was ministering the gospel in Ephesus. And then Colossae, to the east of Ephesus, there's a man named Epaphras in Colossae. Epaphras goes to Ephesus, becomes a Christian through Paul's ministry. Then he goes back to Colossae and leads many, many people to Christ. And I want to focus on him for a minute because this is exactly what you're going to have to do when you go to college. You're going to walk into a pagan place where many don't know Jesus and have to be a witness in a place where many don't know him. But my hope is that you'll be like Epaphras and churches might start because of the ministry that you take to wherever you go. And so this is why we're doing this series is to, to, to encourage you to be like Epaphras and do what he did, but also because Colossians was written by Paul Paul never met the Colossians. He just heard about them secondhand. He writes them a letter, Colossians, and to encourage them in their faith because he's, he's worried about them falling prey to false ideas. Not just false ideas out there in the culture, but false ideas that are inside the church, and both are equally dangerous. And so look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, 
and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And yes, this is the verse that I read, and I thought, we're going to call this series Rooted because of that one word that just stuck out to me in verse 7. This is the theme passage for the whole book and this whole series. So when, when Paul says, you, you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, what do you think of? What's the first thing you think of when you hear the word receive Jesus? What do you think of? What? Presence? <laughs> okay. Um, like receive his presence, like with a C-E on the end, or like Christmas presents? Christmas presents. Got it. I was trying to give you an out to give you the spiritual answer, but you went the other way anyway, so never mind. Um, so yes, okay, you receive presents. Uh, what else do you think of when you think of receive Christ? What comes to your mind? Forgiveness. Um, what I'm kind of going towards here is, is most of us think of like praying to receive Christ, conversion, surrendering your life to Christ. Um, these are the words that we use when we talk about someone becoming a Christian. And so Paul's referring back to a time when they they acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that they are sinners separated from God because of their sin, and they receive Christ Jesus as Lord. And so there's this picture here that, that might sound um, even modern day to us. But I want, you to, I want you to make sure that you know this, that becoming a Christian is much more than just praying a simple prayer. It's much more than just praying the sinner's prayer, the salvation prayer that some churches uh, put out there, but it's about surrendering to him. And so what Paul is saying, though, when he says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What he means by that is, in the same way that you receive Jesus, that's the same way that you should walk in him. I'll explain what I mean by this. Because some people think that when they become a Christian, they think that they're saved by grace they're saved by faith, and they come to Christ and say, you know, Jesus, I need you in my life. I want to put my faith and trust in you. I know I can't earn my salvation, and I know it's only because of your grace that I can even be a Christian. And that's how they come to Christ, which is true and right. But then here's how they view the rest of the Christian faith. They think the rest of the Christian faith is just about just work as hard as you can to be a good person. That's how they view the rest of the Christian faith. It starts in grace, but somehow ends up in works. And we get these things confused. And what Paul is saying is that, no, just as you receive Jesus, so walk in him. So the way that you start being a Christian in grace, by faith, the same thing is going to be what fuels your growth and your walk with him. You receive him in the same way that you're going to eventually walk in him. The, the, there's no separation here. It's not like you become a Christian through grace and then grow through works. It's all about grace. Grace is going to be the fuel that propels you towards growth. It's going to have to come from there. Because here's the deal. The Colossians were being tempted to add things to the gospel. The Colossians were being tempted to say, okay, Jesus, yeah, we got Jesus, but this over here sounds a lot better and so they're getting into legalism, adding rules to the gospel. It was Jesus and, Jesus plus something else. And Paul is writing to refute that and say, no, just the same way that you received him, which is by faith and grace, 
That's the same way that you're going to walk in him, that you're going to grow. And so I want you to see this next quote. Write this down. Christian growth does not always come from learning something new, but from walking in what you already know. Christian growth does not always come from graduating to the next step, the next level, JV to varsity. It goes from, you grow from walking in what you already know. And this is something I learned when I was in seminary, because when I went off to seminary to learn how to teach the Bible and so on, I thought, I really thought, this, this is going to be like a graduation. Like, I'm going to learn about the, the real Christian faith. I'm going to learn, like, the real stuff, the next level, right? Because when, when, you, when you've been a Christian for a long time, you, you start to feel like it seems pretty simple. The truth of the gospel just seems like, yeah, it's pretty simple. I mean, what's, okay, what's next? Show me the next thing. And so that's how I began to think. And when I got to seminary, there's this class they make every first-year student take called Spiritual Life. And it's just one hour a week. But the whole point of that class is to ground you and root you in the gospel. And there were times where I would leave that class where the guy would talk about grace. And I, I knew what grace was, at least intellectually. But this teacher that we had had this way of deepening our understanding of what grace really was. And there were times where I'd walk out of that class like with tears in my eyes, like driving home with blurry vision, which is not safe. And because I was beginning to understand what grace really was, what faith really was, what the gospel really was. And here's the interesting thing. Very often, to progress, you've got to go back to the beginning. And that's what God taught me in that class. And this is what, what Paul's trying to teach the Colossians. In order to grow, you've got to go back to the basic fundamental truths of the gospel and Jesus. No more, no less. And here's the thing with you guys in the room. You'll be tempted to chase after new ideas and new things, but there is nothing apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that can save you or grow you. Nothing apart from that. Paul refers to the Christian life as a long walk in this passage. He says, he says walk in him. I think it's a perfect picture of what the Christian life is because sometimes it seems like a long walk. And the scenery is not all that great. And it seems kind of boring. And things are kind of flatlined. And it's not glamorous. And your feet hurt. And you've been walking for a long time. There are times in the Christian life when you're going to be tempted to say, this is it. This is all there is to the Christian life. This is it. And the Colossians are being tempted in the exact same way. They're being tempted to add to Jesus, to add to the gospel. And this is what Paul is writing against. There's a book by uh, a guy I mentioned last week, Tullian uh, Chivijan. He's uh, Billy Graham's grandson. And this book is called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And we talked about this a little bit last summer at Impact Camp. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What he means, this is the entire message of Colossians right here summed up. And all the math nerds are rejoicing right now, I know. Either that or you're freaking out because you're like, that doesn't make any sense, right? So Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But I would add to this. Go to my next slide. I would add this. 
It's not just Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's Jesus plus anything equals nothing. What I mean by that is if you, if you add anything to Jesus, it's really a subtraction. If you add anything to the gospel or to Jesus, it really subtracts Jesus. It minimizes Jesus. It strips Jesus of his power if you add anything to him. You've heard the expression that less is more. Well, in this case, more is actually less. Anything more than Jesus and him crucified is really a, a subtraction. Because sometimes the only way to progress is to go back to the very beginning, the foundation. And so in verse 7, Paul uses three pictures that I want to talk about here. He says, rooted, built, and abounding. Abounding also means overflowing. And so in, in one verse, Paul compares the Christian life to three things. He compares the Christian life to a plant, to a building, and to an overflowing fountain. Now you might think, that's getting confusing. How can he compare the Christian life to this many different things? I can't think of more different things than a plant, a building, and a fountain. Can you? Like those seem, don't seem to relate whatsoever. But I want you to see something really interesting here. Look at the progression. Rooted, what do you think of? Obviously, you think of plant roots, right? Under the ground. Then built up. You think of a building. Then you think of overflowing. You think of an overflowing fountain. There's a progression here of rooted and then built up and then overflowing like a fountain. So even though they're different metaphors, different pictures, there's a progression in the way he tells these things. From, from the foundation, from the base, from the roots, all the way to the top, overflowing with thanksgiving. And there's a progression here as Paul is, is sharing this with the Colossians. And so I want to look just briefly at each one of these ideas. And so um, when you think of roots, roots are not glamorous. There's nothing flashy about roots, but they give life. They're essential to the life of a plant. And when you think about a plant that's, that's rooted in soil, imagining yourself as a plant, right, in, in the Christian life, um, picture yourself there, and after a while, things get boring. After a while, things grow stale. You're, you're like, okay, you're a plant. You're looking around. You're like, I've seen that rock a hundred times, right? I've seen that over. The, the scenery never changes. You're just stuck in the, in the soil rooted, Right? And so the temptation that Christians are going to have is to want to uproot themselves and change their scenery quite a bit. And what Paul is saying here is, no, you stay firmly planted and rooted just like a plant. And so what happens, though, you're tempted to change the soil, to change the scenery, but Paul is saying, no, stay rooted in the same soil of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You stay planted in the same soil of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So many Christians are like tumbleweed. Anybody here grew up in West Texas, like way out there? Um, I think Megan Fulcher, one of our leaders, she's not here today, she grew up in Lubbock, and she said that um, people joke around about tumbleweed, and she's like, they actually have tumbleweed in Lubbock, Texas. So um, tumbleweed would, would blow across her yard on a regular basis. And so this happens, why? Because there's no root system. They, they get plucked off, and the wind just takes them. And that's exactly what happens to many Christians, or so-called Christians, when it comes to the winds of our culture. Because there is no root system in place, 
They're not firmly rooted. They're just like tumbleweed in a tornado. And the next picture Paul uses is the word built. And so Paul is trying to relate here to, I think, different kinds of people. So if you're not like a farmer, an ag person, a rural type person, Paul's like, all right, well, we got buildings. Let's talk about buildings. And so he says the word built actually means being built up, meaning it's, it's still happening. It's happening over and over and over again. We're constantly growing. And so what Paul's trying to communicate is that Christians are like a building that's always under construction. They're like Scott and White Hospital. They're just always under construction, right? They're never finished. They're never done. And so what he's saying, I want you to catch this though. Watch, watch. I want you to catch this. The building might always be in the process of construction, but the foundation never changes. The foundation never changes. The foundation never moves. The building might be under construction, but the foundation never changes. This is a picture of you and what your life should look like as a Christian, that even though you're constantly being sanctified, growing, you're constantly under construction, but the foundation should never change. The foundation should never move. And then the third thing he talks about is abounding, overflowing like, like a fountain, like a river overflowing its banks. And so um, now these ideas might seem kind of unrelated, but I want you to see this because they're, they're all three of them are connected. In fact, um, two summers ago, we had the really vicious drought here in Texas. And if I could show you pictures of my front yard before that drought and then now, it's amazing the difference. Now it looks like trash. It's awful. There's brown spots everywhere. There's like dirt. Uh, my kids have like a built-in sandbox in the front yard. It's just, we don't need a sandbox. We got one in the whole front yard is a sandbox. And so, but the front yard before was nice and green. I would mow it. It looked like a golf course. It was perfect. Then the drought hits. And what happened in the drought was, I thought it was just because of the drought. So I'm trying to water my grass. But about a year later, my grass is just dead and horrible and looks awful. And this person who's a lawn person said, you know what that is? You have slugs under the surface of your, of your, of your ground. I was like, like worms? He goes, yeah. He goes, worms did that. I said, really? And he said, yeah, they eat the root systems. And what happened was these slugs get under our ground, and they eat the roots of my grass, and they kill the grass. And so they're killing it from underneath. And I started thinking about this, and, and here's what I, I'm thinking about when I, when I hear this is that What's, what you see on the surface is indicative of what's beneath the surface. What you see on the outside shows what's underneath the surface. And what Paul's trying to say here, look, if you're rooted, you're firmly rooted, if you're like a building on a, on a solid foundation, it's going to overflow in thanksgiving to Jesus. It's going to come out of your life. And so what's on the surface of your life is going to indicate what's beneath the surface in the root system. The two are connected. And there's this connection between what your expression of thanksgiving to Jesus for what he's done for you. If, you've got a, if you're firmly planted and firmly rooted, it's going to overflow in thanksgiving towards Jesus in your life. That's what your life's going to look like on the outside. Go ahead and discuss questions one through four at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. Everybody should have a discussion sheet, I believe. So if you don't have a leader at your table, just someone grab it and ask the questions.
Okay, let's look at uh, verse 8, the next verse in the passage, and we'll do some more discussion here at the end in a moment. So look with me at verse 8. It says, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, when Paul says, according to human tradition and the world, what he means by that is there are going to be things you're going to hear in our culture that are going to sound a lot more attractive, a lot more true, a lot more plausible than the gospel. That's just the way it is. You see this in movies, in culture, in the media, out there on the street. It's everywhere. There are ideas and and things you're going to hear that are going to sound a lot more attractive than the gospel. That's just the way it is. And Paul knows this as well as he writes to the Colossians. You're going to hear false teaching outside the church, and Paul is saying, be careful that these ideas don't captivate you. There's something about false, something false that's captivating. There's something about when you hear something that opposes the gospel and and goes against the flow and goes against what you've been taught your whole life. There's something about that that can be captivating and alluring and sounds like it makes more sense than the gospel. So you're going to hear things outside the church, but you're also going to hear things in the church that are false teaching as well. And this is also what Paul's addressing. He's addressing people who are are trying to bring rules and regulations and legalism and add those things to Jesus and, and say it's Jesus and it's Jesus plus these things. And so what Paul is, is saying is that, let me just back up for a second. I think one of the most dangerous things about living in the Bible Belt, where many people say they're Christians, is this idea. It's people that are involved in church. They've, they've known about church their whole life. They've been a part of the body of Christ for a long time. It's, it's those kinds of people that can easily fall prey to false ideas inside the church as well. And let's ask the question, why would anybody be tempted towards legalism, adding more rules, more regulations, legalism? Why would anybody be tempted towards that? What is it about human nature that would make somebody want to live that way? Why why did the Pharisees want to live under more regulations? Why do the Colossians want to add these things to the gospel? What's moving them? There's a talk I heard this past week by the guy that wrote the book, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And there's, four, there's three points I want you to, that I'm going to quote him from, and it's these. Why is legalism so attractive? Go to my next slide. The first thing is it puffs us up and gives the impression that we can do it on our own. So that's one thing that allures us to this idea of legalism. If, if I can create the rules and I can follow the rules, then it's going to puff up myself, make me feel good about me, and it gives me the impression that I can do this whole Christianity thing on my own. The second reason is this. If we can keep the rules, we can feel good about ourselves. If you and I can keep the rules that we've created and added to the gospel, then it's a way for us to feel better about ourselves, to feel good about ourselves. And the third reason he gives is the most convicting. Because it allows us to avoid Jesus without acknowledging our insufficiency. Because when you and I can create a set of rules that make us feel better about ourselves, if we follow those rules, then we think, hey, I'm a good person. Hey, I don't 
I don't think I really need Jesus like other people do. Now, yeah, I need him, but not like she does, not like he does. And it allows us to avoid Jesus, and, and we have this weird mixture gospel that says, yeah, yeah, I believe Christ is Lord. I believe that he's a Messiah, but I don't need him like the way that you need him. I don't need him as much as you do. And it allows us to skirt around the reality of our sin. And we don't really have to own it. And so one reason we avoid the true gospel is because the gospel makes us disappear. You and I avoid the true gospel because the gospel makes us less. The gospel makes us realize our insufficiency before Christ. The gospel makes you and I go, disappear. It makes us realize how insignificant we really are and how magnificent Christ is. Look at verse 9. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there we go, another three-verse sentence from Paul. And Paul can be long-winded. But when you read Colossians, what I think is interesting, and there's some sentences like this that you read and go, that just sounds like a bunch of jarbled language. What does he even mean by all that? When you start to look at the different pieces of what he's saying, it gets to be pretty profound. So I want you to skip down to verse 12 at the very bottom. He talks about baptism. What baptism is, it's not just dunking someone underwater and that's it. It's not like a little magic show, right, of, you know, hey, the person's now clean, right? It's, it's supposed to symbolize, it's an outward symbol of an inward reality. And so this verse shows us that when you are baptized, it doesn't mean just to immerse someone in water. It means to identify with. And so when you're baptized, you are identifying your life with Christ's life. Christ is identifying with you. What that means is that what happened to Jesus physically happens to us spiritually. So the picture of baptism is literally death, burial, and resurrection. And it's good the resurrection happened because otherwise we'd have to hold you under for a long time, right? And you would just die, a slow death. And so the picture is someone rising up in the same way that Jesus rose up, in the same way Christ was resurrected, Paul is saying the same thing happened to, happens to you spiritually. You are spiritually resurrected. And in the next verse, he talks about how this plays out, how this happens. In verse 13, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. So many people think that being a Christian is about a bad person becoming good. This verse is clear that being a Christian is about a dead person becoming alive. And the implications of that are infinite. I don't have time to even discuss that right now, but it's, there are far-reaching implications and it's, it's, it's about a lot more than just a bad person becoming good. But it's about a dead person being made alive. 
And the question is, how are we made alive? This verse is pretty clear. Jesus makes us alive by canceling the debt that you and I owe him. And the picture here is a very vivid picture. I want want you to see this. Because in that day when someone's crucified, their crimes are written on a note and nailed to the cross for everyone to see. So if you're guilty of murder and you're being crucified, they put a note saying just that. This person's guilty of murder. This is why they're hanging on this cross. Now, if you remember, there was a note nailed to the cross of Christ. What did it say? What did it say? Anyone? Jesus, King of the Jews. I can always count at least one nerd to know the answer. Thank you, Jacob. Yeah. I appreciate that. So it says, it says Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Do you know who put that on his cross? It was Pontius Pilate. Do you know what happened? Pontius Pilate puts us on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And a Pharisee comes to Pontius and says, hey, can you change that to being he said he was king of the Jews, not that he really was the king of the Jews? And Pontius Pilate's response is, what I have written, I have written. I think this is Pontius Pilate's way of saying to the Jews, that he's innocent, that even I as Pilate knows he's innocent, and I'm going to stick this in your face. He's Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And what's the note attached to Jesus' cross was a reminder to the Jews of his innocence. But I want you to see this. At the same time, that note's attached to his cross, stating his innocence. Your guilt, our guilt, and our shame was nailed to that cross with him. So whatever your sin list is, and mine's long, it would be a long, long list. Whatever that that list is, this verse is telling us that whatever your list, whatever my list is, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. In spite of the fact that he was innocent and we are guilty, he took that guilt and shame, put it on himself, put it on his cross, and he saved us by canceling out that debt that you and I owe. And when he did this, he defeats the demonic powers and the authorities. And you might ask the question, okay, how in the world is Jesus dying on the cross? How is that a triumph? How is that a defeat of anyone but Jesus? But this verse says, when Jesus did this, took our debt on himself, he defeats the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame. So I want you to see this is really important that you get this. So what are some sins you've committed in your life that you feel like, I just can't believe I ever did that? I feel shame about that. I feel horrible about that. I can't believe, how can God ever accept me because of what I've done? If that's you, this verse says that you're wrong to think that way. This verse says that Jesus Christ took that guilt and shame on himself, and he turns the tables now. He turns the shame on who? The demonic rulers and authorities. Not on you. He takes it upon himself, and he turns the tables. The cross turns the tables, and he shames the demonic rulers and authorities. And you and I are seen as innocent when it comes to how Jesus views you. 
And so with that, I want you to go ahead and discuss your last few questions. Go ahead and discuss and then pray whenever you're finished at your tables.